Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161BG109, The State of American Literature. From the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 217, May 14, 1990. This evening, Otto Scott and I are going to discuss the state of American literature. And I'm going to ask Otto to make a general introduction to the subject. Well, thank you, Rush. The state of American literature is one of advanced decay, as far as I can tell. And very strange things have been going on in recent years. The general publications, as usual, review novels, but novels are now only 10% of the books that are published in the United States. Most of the books that are published are how-to books, books on uh, how to make yourself Hercules or Cleopatra, how to improve yourself, in other words, and books that have an immediate purpose. At the same time, we have, on a larger level, a development which brings to mind what Tocqueville said about the difference between literature in an aristocracy and literature in a democracy. In an aristocracy, he said, literature is apt to be devoted to the extraordinary individual because the individual is in the eyes of an old and traditional society responsible for the turn of events. But in a democracy where everybody is pushed down to a common level, the idea arises that impersonal forces are responsible for events. So we have a great many non-fiction books devoted to trends and to abstract causes and motivations and so forth. The gap between scholarly books or semi-scholarly books in most cases put out by the university and the popular books put out on the news racks of the airline terminals and places like that is getting wider and wider. We seem to have a choice between pedantry and semi-pornography. And that's, uh, that's about the way it looks to me, Rush. Well... What you said ties in with what I uh, was commenting about yesterday with regard to Joachim Neander, the church historian. Neander's uh, church history uh, reflects a kind of encyclopedic knowledge, a full awareness of all the ins and outs of church history that... Uh, reflects a time when a scholar was not interrupted, as I said uh, yesterday, by the telephone or television, and therefore could spend endless hours researching. But Neander is now forgotten, precisely for the same reason that no longer uh, will the Academy view as serious any work that places the emphasis on what men have done. It has to be social forces, impersonal movements, 
economic factors, a variety of things that impersonalize history. Well, of course, implicit in that attitude is a <clears throat> sort of, if I could use the phrase, democratic envy of the extraordinary. I keep running into the fact that men find it difficult to believe that there are superior people. When I met Paul Blazer of Ashton Oil, the founder, and talked to him, I found him to be, at that point, the most brilliant man I'd ever talked to. And very courteous, very charming, um, but very much to the point. When I had to write him down, I found that uh, I couldn't write him the way he really was because the average man would not believe that anyone that superior exists. The average person is almost educated to believe that everything, is, all progress is the result of an accident, of, of manipulation, of luck, of the fact that you may be better born, uh, you may have a break somewhere, or things of that sort. To actually believe that anyone was that superior would strain his credulity and make the book unreadable. So I actually had to reduce him in the book. Mm. Well, that's understandable. Um, Dorothy was reading recently a work by a highly regarded English writer, and there was a character in it whose role was basically a good one. An elderly woman living alone, a figure that you would... Uh, sympathize with and respect for her general character. But what the authoress did was to deal endlessly with the problems with regard to the toilet that this woman had to make it very difficult for you to feel sympathetic towards that woman. And that is a kind of strategy that is very, very common now to demean every figure they deal with. Well, you're moving on into our next topic. Yes. I didn't <laughs> intend to, but uh, it pointed uh, to that. But there is much of that in the biographies now. Yes. There is very little new insight in the uh, upgraded biographies that are appearing about well-known historic personages accepting the bedroom mm -hmm. and now the veil has been parted I recall reading Thomas Mann's book Joseph in Egypt and if it was a trilogy if I recall yes. and there was one point where uh, Joseph had been pulled out of the prison by Pharaoh and then when he was well situated in the court he got married and I recall that Thomas Mann's phrase was, we will not carry this narrative beyond the doors of the bedroom. Nor was it necessary. But now, apparently, all is to be revealed. As soon as a person is dead, and of course, you know, in American law, you cannot libel the dead. Mm -hmm. And consequently, the minute people die... 
anyone of note, any celebrity dies, there is a flood of vultures, uh, grave robbers, who go to work on this reputation. At the same time, the person who is guilty of the pornographic perspective is idolized. I think an example of that is the photographer Mablethorpe. Uh, he, of course, has been very much in the news because his uh, photography has dealt with homosexual and other acts, has been funded by the federal government, and recently created a major disturbance at a Cincinnati gallery, I believe. And the interesting thing is, when someone does that, the favor they immediately gain. They become something of a uh, hero. So that a new book has just appeared, which has nothing to do with Maplethorpe and his kind of thing, and a very objectionable photograph by Maplethorpe is on the book jacket. Now, uh, they are reaching today to exalt that which once was felt not uh, fit for the public view. Well, Samuel Lipman in Commentary Magazine has a lead article in a recent issue entitled uh, Backward and Downward with the Arts. And obviously, literature is part of the arts, and in fact, a directing part of the arts. I think this country is very paradoxical in its attitude and behavior toward writers. I can vouch for the fact that almost everyone in this country who can sign his name with anything beside an X is positive that if he had the time, he could be a writer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's the most common delusion in the nation. They seem to think that it comes automatically, that nobody has to study or work at it, it doesn't require any great effort, and certainly no, no skill beyond what the next man has. But I, your comments about Maplethorpe made me think of Tom Wolfe's book, The Painted Word, in which the modern paintings, the modernist, uh, the abstract expressionist school would never have come into being would never maintain itself, although it's now sagging badly, if it hadn't been for the words that accompany it, if it hadn't been for the various art critics who decided that the drip message of Jackson Pollock really represented art and a deliberate effort instead of just dripping paint across the canvas at random. They saw deep significance. And in a larger sense, our society is still dependent upon the printed word for the whatever intelligence it makes out of what occurs. We are, uh, the people on television read mainly news as is gathered by the wire services. They do not write or compose or create that news themselves. In very rare instances where they interview is where the camera can reach him. They may get a couple of sound bites, but they can't tell you the purpose or the thrust or the trend of the interview. 
They're not articulate. We discovered that during the San Francisco earthquake when they were reduced to asking people how they felt instead of what happened to them. And literature for Western society, or even I would say the Christian society, the Christian society is based upon a book. It's based upon the Bible. And when literature ceases to have coherence, this civilization will cease to exist. Yes. Well, in the 1920s, apart from some of the major weeklies like the Saturday Evening Post, Collier's and Liberty, which carried short stories, you also had periodicals, monthlies, which were devoted exclusively to fiction. Mm -hmm. And uh, the materials they uh, published were of a very high quality. I'm, uh, you know, I picked up three volumes of W.W. W. Jacobs in uh, uh, Portland recently. Well, I was introduced to Jacobs in some of those periodicals of the 20s. They were uh, exceptionally good writing because while they were not great uh, literature, they reflected a wholesome and an intelligent perspective on life and uh, gave you a glimpse into a particular area. For example, I mentioned W.W. W. Jacobs. His knowledge of uh, English uh, seamen, English canal boat men, and fishermen was very, very great. He perhaps had a background in that, but at any rate, you learn to appreciate a particular segment of life and through these characters and get a wholesome perspective on the world they lived in, on the problems they faced. And that's gone now. Well, I have a different view of the 20s. The, the big writers of the 20s were very cynical. There were Hemingway yes. and uh, Scott Fitzgerald and the others. Uh, the 20s is a period, I only recall what the latter part of the 20s, of course, but it was a rough, vulgar, stupid era Anyone who calls it, who thinks that it was a happy era, has no knowledge of what it really was like. Uh, and the literature was, to a great deal, uh, extent debunking, debunking literature, uh, making fun of the Victorians and and uh, Heming what Hemingway called the noble words with mm -hmm. a sneer. The thirties were closer to me because mm -hmm. I was a bit older. And the 30s were, uh, popular li literature in the 30s, because of the Depression, paid more attention to the common people than the literature of the 20s. And even the New Yorker, for instance, they had, I remember one of the best stories that appeared in the New Yorker in the 30s was the luckiest man in the world who had gotten a job dri driving a dynamite truck. And there, there, there were blue-collar people in the, in the New Yorker stories, and there were people who had money troubles. 
and how they help, how they handle them. Now, for the, the New Yorker is off into fantasy of some sort. Uh, the stories have, are all mood. They have no plot. They have, they're, they're all middle. They have no end, no, no, uh, no beginning. And, of course, again, uh, perversion stalks through the pages. You're very right about the uh, 20s as they were reflected in the reigning novels of the area, era. But remember some of the great old storytellers like Clarence Buddington Kelland. That I do. And uh, Peter B. Kind. Yes, I like and that. And many, many others were still around. That's true. And were writing for many publications. That's true. Uh, the men you mentioned, of course, came increasingly to the fore because they were promoted very heavily by the New York critics um, who were of the same general school as H.L. Mencken, well, cynics. What we had here, and I have a book at home, university book called The Making of Faulkner. Mm-hmm. Uh, Faulkner was made by the universities, yes. and he really didn't hit the popular uh, mind until after World War II when they published the portable Faulkner and that the drums really rolled and he, he really that's that's when he was suddenly uh, erected as a great writer uh, I have trouble with Faulkner I have trouble with Jeed I have trouble with Proust I have trouble with anybody who can't complete a sentence yes well I read Faulkner when I was in the university and I learned about the same time that he was an alcoholic. And I, my conclusion was that if I thought like that and wrote like that, I'd be drunk all the time to run away from myself. He was a mess. He was a mess, and a very unhappy mess, and so were all the ones I've just mentioned. Yes. And yes. Uh, this idea of art, and especially writers, as being... Uh, unhealthy people mm-hmm. is now a part of the American legend. Uh, I have another book at home on uh, alcoholic writers and they go on from one to the next to the next to the next and I remember when I was in South Africa that one of the party in the tour, the first tour I took, bought some wine and served, uh, had gave everybody cups and was serving wine this was early in the morning, and uh, even the smell of wine early in the morning is not attractive to me. And he said, oh, come on. He said, we all know that you're a writer, and all writers are alcoholics. <laughs> Did you say I'm a teetotaler writer? <laughs> I just laughed, gave my cup to somebody else. <laughs> But what is happening here is that the university has gradually moved into the old aristocratic position of determining who is a real writer and who is not, and who is acceptable and who is not. Now, I've been very fortunate in some of my historical books in not having to go through a peer review Anne's cousin, Gilman Ostrander, who was a professor of American history and had a number of books published, 
suffered the agonies of the damned because the minute he turned in a manuscript, the publisher would send it to a peer review of other professors of American history, and you know they wouldn't leave a sentence alone. Well, in the 30s, when I was a student, English departments at that time at the colleges and universities tended to be very heavily uh, tilted towards homosexual professors, who in turn favorably promoted uh, homosexual writers and homosexual students. And it was a well-known thing how you could get a doctorate the easy way. Now, that's the kind of temperament that began to reign. Well, of course, in literature, you recall in, say, the late 40s and early 50s, where you'd pick up a book, if it was a novel, and you'd see where the writer had been... Uh, a motorcycle rider, a dishwasher, a truck driver, <laughs> yes. gosh knows, they had the wildest backgrounds you can imagine. That's all gone. Now you get his educational resume. Mm -hmm. And more and more, they, the, uh, I've forgotten the name of the publication now that's put out by Phi Beta Kappa, but American Scholar, I think it is, yes. had a long article a few issues back on the type of literature, the type of fiction that is coming out of the universities. And he said, they're writing for other professors. Yes. They're not writing for the American people. And this is, I think, one of the problems of the American culture today. We know, of course, that there's a small coterie that writes the television scripts because Stein has told us about that, Ben Stein. Mm -hmm. But every country needs its legends. Every country needs its narrations. Every country needs a literature that is living with it and is part of it and that doesn't hate it. This is the only country and the only literature, I think, in all history that's written by people who seem to hate their fellow citizens and their culture. I think, however... Otto, that that is common now to the Western world because the academic community in country after country has begun to dominate the literary scene. They set the standards. Uh, they are closely linked with the critics. And they do um, have guest professorships whereby they go from one country to another and the foundations finance that, so that we are developing an international culture of studied rootlessness and a contempt for the old values. Well, the critics are mainly non-WASP, as you know, mm -hmm. and they absolutely push all the WASP values under the water. Yes. They take great pleasure in denigrating them. Yes. Now, this is, a, this is a rather sinister turn of events because it robs people of what they have a right to expect from their writers and their intellectuals. Well, I think one of the clearest 
indications of what has happened is poetry. If you go back to the 20s, you find that uh, there were poets like Edna St. Vincent Millay, who, despite her rather warped perspective, had a magnificent lyrical quality. She was a lyric poet. And Sarah Teasdale, with her superb poetry. Vachel Lindsay, who came out of a Salvation Army family and who believed that poetry should be read by the people and would recite it in public. His poetry it reads uh, magnificently when read aloud. You had a host of poets like that. But today the poets have university uh, lectureships. They get grants from foundations. They write poetry that no one but a professor will read, which are for the most part, meaningless, and when they do have meaning, you're sorry they do. They're so foul. But this is poetry. Who reads it now? I don't know. There's a great deal of it printed. Uh, when Athenaeum was operating as an independent house, the production manager, Harry Ford, was also the poetry editor. Mm. I always found to be a very unusual combination of talents and uh, in their catalog every year they had a number of books of poetry. I have only a very few poems, that, uh, poets that I can endure. I like Keats, I like Byron, I know you don't, but I do. And I like a few others, very few others. Mostly uh, some bad school teachers hammered poetry right out of my heart and I just couldn't stand it. And when I got through gnawing on one or two phrases for three months, I got to the point where I hated the whole <laughs> idea. And I could never understand who issued the license that enabled them to break all the rules. Well, I delight in poetry. So I pick up uh, a few books of poetry each year hoping to find something that'll be intelligible. How does it but work out? Badly. badly. Very badly. Very, very bad. Badly. Well, of course, Dylan Thomas was a pleasure. Hmm. I don't know, have you read him? Who? Dylan Thomas. Oh, Dylan Thomas, yes. Uh, he was uh, occasionally uh, a, a readable. But by and large, the... Books of poetry are published with foundation grants to be sold to universities. Well, that's true of a great deal. Yes. Now, the university presses, of course, are union publications. Mm -hmm. uh, they are turning out some very good things, some very interesting things, but I recall being told by a publisher in New York who rejected a manuscript of mine. He said, the problem, Otto, is that your your work, he said, is not heavily pedantic. He said it isn't footnoted every other minute uh, like the universities would turn out. And he said it isn't down to the common level. He said you come in between. And he said, unfortunately, you get lost. And I said, that's where most people are. Yes. I couldn't see his argument for little green apples. That's right.
Well, the state of literature today is a very sorry one because the problem is twofold. First, people are not learning how to read in the public schools, and the number of functional illiterates is growing by leaps and bounds. And second, those who can read can't find anything fit to read. Well, we do have probably the busiest people in the world. Most of the... Uh, we, we really lead harassed lives. Uh, most Americans, I think, in their prime today are oppressed on the job with reports, with voluminous papers, with things to fill out, with things to look at, with things to review. And when they get through, they really don't have the energy to read. There are, and somebody said this once, and he said it better, I'm sure, that some of the most beautiful flowers emerge from dung hills. You know that some of the great pieces of literature of the world have come out of some very troubled and very uh, unpleasant periods. So you really, there's no, seems to be no rule of thumb on this. Uh, you really can't say that uh, literature is totally dependent upon society. But what we are running into here is that the publishers in New York have adopted the Hollywood system. They have stars. They want blockbusters, and they will no longer promote the writer for a smaller audience who can produce steadily and on a high level over a period of time. And they will no longer promote the writer for a smaller audience who can produce steadily and on a high level over a period of time. The writers that... Uh, with the, you recall in the 30s when writers were really held aloft. Yes. They were celebrities, but now there are no great writers in the country as far as the average person is concerned. Mm -hmm. There are some very popular writers, but let's look at them. I mean, do, will anybody remember Judy Bloom? Uh, yes. We don't have any uh, female writers like uh, Vina Del Mar and some of the others who used to write for the women. Yes. Women don't read as much, but even so, women read more than men do. Yes, women uh, have been uh, more prone to read, and they have been important to literature because... Uh, not being tied to a nine-to-five job. In the past. In the past. They have been the readers. But two things have happened. One, more and more women are working, so they're reading less. And second, their tastes have been debauched, so they are reading paperback romances. The uh, What is it? Barbara Cartledge uh, type of thing. Harlequin. You began earlier, Otto, by calling attention to the fact that at one time literature was written for an aristocracy and others benefited by the fact that there was an audience that concentrated on literature, on the arts generally, 
that was intelligent, that had uh, an awareness of the importance of the individual. Well, that was an important factor which has not been appreciated in the histories of literature and the arts, in the arts more so, in painting. But in uh, the sphere of literature, it has not been appreciated. In fact, it's been dealt with rather negatively. And I think a major turning point in Western literature, in this country uh, in particular, came with women's vote. One very fine political scientist in this country at Columbia called attention after World War II to what would happen now. He said that women's role had been critical in the past in a number of areas. Two important ones were the arts and charities. And he predicted that with women now voting, they would seek to replace charity with welfareism, which of course has happened. In the other area, as women have gone from voting to working, the audience that uh, was very important to the arts is now gone. It used to be that there was a regular circuit before World War II uh, across the country of uh, women's organizations, clubs, church groups, and the like, to which writers spoke. They made a tour of the country that way. And now it's replaced with a television promotional and a radio promotional. But that's not the same. That uh, is an entirely different thing. It certainly isn't the same. Well, of course, after the Civil War, as you know, American men got busy in business and industry, building roads, factories, and so forth, take care of the flood of immigrants, and the industrialization of the country really took an upward spurt after 65. And the arts were turned over to the women. There was a feminization of American art, and uh, genteel literature reigned because the women's audience was the big audience and the writers were very careful and uh, it was a sort of a post-Victorian type of literature which prevailed up until the turn of the century when the muckbreakers came in and of course that sort of literature, you might say adulterated literature, couldn't last. It, it really was too unrealistic. But what we have now, as you indicate, the women's clubs are fading because women don't have time for them anymore. They're mainly occupied by older women today. Younger women are not joining them, don't have the time. But women are more interested in the political and the economic than they used to be yes. because they're in the workplace. So they've become almost like men in their regard to literature. They want books and magazines that are practical, that have an immediate meaning, that help them in specific projects. And this, of course, is one of the aspects of a democracy, is that everybody is busy on projects. And our literature 
even the fairly good products that are coming out of the universities are aimed at audiences of specialists, not at general audiences. Mm -hmm. In fact, the professors believe that anyone who reaches general popularity is by that factor déclassé. Uh, he no longer has professional status. Uh, they turn their back on that sort of thing. Very few have escaped that. Uh, just a few, if they're on the left, they can escape it. Margaret Mead, for instance, and her trash uh, could could get someplace. But generally speaking, no. What we have in in the terms of literature, much as in the terms of uh, the American society, we have a great number of very skillful writers who are all plowing a very narrow field, and there is no overall literature in the real sense of the word. There has been no embracive vision for the nation or the people. The people are different than they were. They're more variegated. We have more races. We have more religions. We have more of everything that we had. We have here an empire of people which has not been equal since the days of Rome, but we don't have the image of Rome. We don't have the old image of America. And none of our literateurs have recovered the glimpse of the eagle that once flew so high. Mm -hmm. This is a very serious lack. Yes. Well, because the Academy has taken over literature, analysis has replaced appreciation. It's a very good point. And I called attention uh, before we began to the fact that Coleridge's poem and Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree where Alf the sacred river ran and so on. A poem of about maybe 40 lines and yet thousands of pages have been written by uh, academicians analyzing sentence after sentence of that poem. Now, it's that spirit of dissection that has taken over and I think has helped destroy literature. Well, it's timidity, too. Uh, we have burning issues at stake here in the United States. You can't even look out the window without seeing a novel. And uh, yet, I went through a card catalog not too long ago uh, and by mistake opened up something in the, the J's and there was the entire card catalog was packed with books on William James. Mm -hmm. Now, William James isn't worth more than five cards at the most. <laughs> well... When I was a student, I recall very vividly uh, this uh, other student who was a major, I think, in physics or chemistry, something like that, who was in a course in the English department in which I was enrolled. And after about two months, he decided to drop out. I've forgotten uh, what poets were being studied. It may have been the Romantic, but I don't recall. And 
he in particular was very fond of uh, one of the poets and hoped to know more about him and get a better appreciation of his poetry. And he said, all I've gotten here is dissection. And he said, uh, I'm going to quit before they sour me on the poet. Well, of course. And, of course, now, of course, we have schools of literature. The uh, idea that the writer didn't know what he said. Yes. Didn't understand what he what he tried to produce, and then we have the school that believes that words have no real meaning at all because they're taken to have different meanings by different people. Ergo, there is no meaning. And of course, we could say that about the person who said that, but he wouldn't feel too good about it. Uh, we have literature for specialists, literature for every segment of the market. The publishing companies now have marketing men who sit alongside the editor, and the editor may select a book, but the marketing man will destroy the book. Uh, James I, which Rosshaus reprinted, was seriously considered by Harper and Rowe in San Francisco, and the marketing man turned it down. Now, the marketing people have the market all divided like a pie plate into slices, and everything has to be categorized. Well, I can think of many books that don't fit any category. I I recall an engineering friend of mine who I looked at one of my corporate manuscripts, and I said, I apologize because I gave the engineer short shrift. He said, that's all right. He said, I like to read about other things than engineering. There are a lot of other things that I'm interested in. But the marketing men don't allow you to have more than one interest. Yes. Someone on our mailing list wrote to me last year about a manuscript that had been turned down by publishers because while the editors said it was an excellent book, the marketing men were against it. Well, then what have we got? Yes. What does a marketing man know about readers? And his prejudices govern the market because he will not promote a book that... Uh, he feels that a salesman can't describe in 15 seconds to complete the sentence for you. I, uh, I find this one of the most ludicrous things in the world. Well, you and I recall a conversation with a publisher about one of your books. And he was afraid that the marketing men would not accept it. Which they didn't. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, it was a Christian publisher who is apparently addicted to Dick and Jane theology. <laughs> yes, that's a good way of describing it. And is afraid of his own marketing men, whom he could fire at will. Yes. But in the meantime, the bird has been shot. Mm-hmm doesn't fly. And one of the reasons that people do not read is because the things that are put in front of them aren't worth reading. That's right. We have bestsellers that move from the bestseller list to the remainder table in 10 days. Well, I think I told you about uh, what Tinsley, the editor of New Republic, did recently. Tinsley. Kinsley, yes. He... uh, 
He's such a Tinsel character most of the time. <laughs> I don't know why I want to call him Tinsley, but that may be the reason. At any rate, he went into a major bookstore, and uh, he uh, put slips offering $5 to anyone who located the slip. He did this to stacks of books. Never had one person call him because he found uh, his theory was confirmed that most people who read uh, books don't read them. They read the popular reviews, then they get the book and uh, discuss it with others, but they have no knowledge of what the book says. Well, that's almost as evil a stunt as the trick of sending... Uh a, a large tome or recommending a large tome to somebody and saying I'm sure you'll be amused at what they say about you <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes I recall I've forgotten who it was who pulled that stunt a dull book of over a thousand pages and everybody read through to find the reference which was non-existent <laughs> Well, well, uh, journalism has replaced a lot of literature. And in fact, a lot of things that parade now as literature are really journalism. Uh, television has replaced a lot of literature. And what you get on television, whether it's on uh, primetime programs or on Masterpiece Theater, is illogical. There is no intelligent sequence, cause and effect. Action is everything, or on Masterpiece Theater, uh, dramatic uh, shots, uh, feet walking, and well, so I, on. I'll, I'll always be amused at your irritation at one mystery series at Masterpiece Theater because it was mysterious, and I thought, what else would you expect from a mystery series? But putting that to one side, it was the, hokey. It, uh, it turned out all right. I've forgotten now which one it was. Tinker Taylor's Soldier's oh, yes. Spies. I like that one. <laughs> I hated it. I know you did. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they make different movies. But the literature, the journalist thing is serious because journalism... It's almost like covering a thousand chess games a move at a time. Mm -hmm. There's no background. There's no time in journalism for background. And there's no time in journalism for development. Mm -hmm. It's the minute, that move. Yes. This is what you're reporting. They're putting out books that consist of only one point. That has no depth. Mm -hmm. It just has dialogue and a certain amount of action, and that's it. Mm -hmm or a political situation. Now, Casper Weinberger has just gotten out of the Department of Defense two years ago, and he's already got a book out about his tenure in office. This is ridiculous. He hasn't had time to reflect upon his tenure in office, and therefore he hasn't had time to put his own behavior in office in perspective. One really serious people shouldn't be doing things like this. No. 
it seems to me ridiculous that everyone who holds a public office or a position in this country should issue a book about it. Well, periodically, I will read not only a book of poetry, but uh, a contemporary novel um, just picked up at random in order to see what's being done. And the emphasis is so heavily on action that uh, no characters remain in your mind. Now, recently, our Joanna lent us uh, one of the old books she picked up because she's been going around picking up the books that were popular before World War One and shortly thereafter. And they are delightful. They're not great literature, but they're good stories. The one I read recently, I have a vivid recollection of some of the characters and the scenes because they're very real people. Well, they were more realistic. Yes. They were less taboos. Mm -hmm. It was possible then to write a book about the world as it was without having yourself called a Nazi, mm -hmm. without offending individuals who confuse themselves with an entire race of people. Mm -hmm. We have almost reached the point where free expression in print is impossible. Yes, look at what has happened lately to... Uh uh, some of the uh, various people on television, what's his name, uh, who got clobbered? Andy Rooney. Andy Rooney. And then Jim Bre Jimmy Breslin. Uh, yes. Well, more Jim, recently. Jim, anyone who takes Jimmy Breslin seriously should know better. Mm -hmm. uh, he's always been a pop-off. And why uh, would you expect a man of his age to suddenly become demure? <laughs> when he gets into a quarrel with somebody in the city room. This is, uh, but this is a very serious thing yes. because the people who are most strident in favor of speech, free speech are the ones in the forefront of throttling free speech. Yes. In the name of tolerance, all kinds of books are turned down. My book on James I would not be published in New York today under any circumstances because I made it clear that I considered his faggotry of vice. Mm -hmm. That would not be printed today. No, no. No commercial printer would dare touch that today. And a country that throttles its writers while claiming to be free is especially infuriating. Freedom now means being free to attack Christianity. Well, the white Christians are the only people now, this, the only white whales left on the horizon, and there's lots of ahibs with spears looking for them. It's a very strange state of affairs, and really if we come down to it, I think that is what's killed our literature. We cannot tell the truth about our society, and if we can't do that, how can you write? Yes. Well, the media has begun that. For example, 
you and Douglas Murray were in San Francisco recently and you reported on something there that is not reported in the press, namely that gangs are pouring oil in, in intersections so that cars cannot pass and then... Dragging, breaking the car, breaking the windows, dragging the people out, stripping them and robbing them and beating them. Yes. Yes. But the press has said nothing about that. The press that. has not reported that. And when the city workers went out with sawdust and whatnot to clean up the oil spill, the uh, rocks and stones were thrown at them. Well, mm -hmm. that's not printed. There's lots of things that are not reported anymore. We have here a literature now which is becoming politicized. This is true. Uh, yes. You notice it more and more uh, in the selections of the big distribu distributing uh, outfits which call themselves book clubs. They're just sales mechanisms. Mm -hmm. They promote and they push. And what do they push? They push one-eyed books. They push mm -hmm. books that describe an American society that neither you nor I nor anyone else has ever seen mm -hmm. and doesn't know, a fantasy world. Now, once in a while, a writer breaks through, Tom Wolfe, in his mm -hmm. uh, Bonfire of the Vanities, broke almost all the taboos. He did it very skillfully. It was like watching a man go through a minefield. It was really remarkable. He, he didn't see it. But he's touched so many taboos that none of the reviewers were able to describe <laughs> the book. They yes. simply took little pieces of it, and they said as little about it as possible, for fear they too would fall into the cliff. One set, one paragraph, one phrase, one expression is enough to ruin somebody. Can you imagine an entire nation being put in intellectual captivity by the people who have been voted out of office in election after election on a national level? Well, I think the hope for the future is in the fact that the Christian schools are going to create steadily a different culture. Well, they're creating readers. Yes. I have, uh, you know, you know, all our books are read by Christians' families. Mm, yes. Like they used to read Dickens. Well, our grandson Isaac is 10 years old. He's in uh, 4-H. And... Uh, it was interesting, he moved a rock the other day that weighed far more than he did. He did it by using a pipe as a lever. He had learned about that in school. And we were uh, commenting about that, and he told us that uh, at the 4-H club, most of the boys are public school boys. They cannot read simple things. They can't read instructions. No. If they're asked to get up and present something, they're incoherent. They can't speak. No. And uh, he apparently discussed the use of levers with them. And they had not heard of anything like that. They hadn't heard of it. No. So the schools are schools of barbarians. Well, this 
I recall in that book by Auerbach, Mimesis, yes. that he talks about the decline of literacy after the fall of Rome. And in the 5th century or so, a bishop sent from Rome to find out why some tribes had fallen out with each other. And he re reproduced part of the bishop's report, which was a running sentence without punctuation. Now, of course, Augustine was in the same century, so this wasn't true of everybody. But you notice that historians, in the real sense, dropped out of sight for several centuries. Nobody could make sense out of the pattern of events. Nobody could put them down in a coherent fashion. It is possible for civilizations to fall. And I think the modern world has forgotten this, that there is a price for everything. I think you're true, but I think the uh, Christians that are coming forward, the next generation, you might say, are going to have a lot of hard work ahead of them. Yes, uh, one of the things that uh, marks our age and a number of people beginning with Ortega y Gasset and Revolt of the Masses have uh, commented on it, is that civilization is seen in evolutionary and Darwinian terms as an aspect of nature. Not as a product of no, faith, it, ideas. No, it's, it's definitely a, a product. It has to be worked at. A yes. Of, a marriage has to be worked at. Civilization has to be worked at. It has to be maintained. If you break the veil of manners, if you, if you break the manners that hold people together, then there is nothing but wholesale murder around the corner. In fact, this is what we're witnessing. Ortega y Gasset said, the real barbarians, now this was written back in the 20s. 20, late 20s. Yes. Uh, are the scientists and specialists, because they are teaching the world to look at civilization as though it is like the trees and the ocean. As though it's automatic. It's automatic, a part of nature. And as a result, he said, they are the true barbarians. Well, literature, literature is a very difficult undertaking and is not a spontaneous outpouring of the creative spirit at all. It is work. It is, it is uh, in that sense, the same as the fine arts. Uh, painters really don't have a burst of inspiration and rush at the canvas <laughs> and slap out whatever they please, and call it uh, painting. An interesting story along that line. Uh, Igor Stravinsky offended a great many musicians when he said he was simply another nine-to-five workman. He maintained regular hours at his desk, and they were furious with him. Yes, it breaks through the romance, but I'm sure that... Most of those who were furious at him didn't work nine to five. <laughs> and were not as successful yeah, as Stravinsky. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.